uh, James that we have been walking through. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. James is about street-level Christianity. James is about just fleshing out every day what it means to walk with Christ, what it means to live out our faith. And um, it's a reminder to us, based on everything that we've studied so far, and we really only have two messages left um, today and next week, and we will finish um, our study of of James. And uh, it's a reminder to us every week about the fact that God is not just trying to get us into heaven. God is trying to get heaven into us, right? God is changing us from the inside out. God is doing a work inside of us, and the end result would be that we are conformed to the image of Jesus. And so every week we've been kind of learning what it means to look like Christ. Today's text is a very important passage of Scripture in all that James has been trying to teach us. A few years ago, I was driving down the road with one of my sons, and um, he was young at the time, um, eight or ten, I don't remember exactly, Um, but he was sitting in the passenger seat, and I'm driving down the road, and it's a pretty day, and he was looking out the window and staring up at the sky, and I'd been preaching a series at the time on the end times. You know, what's going to happen when Jesus comes? And so we were talking about the differences between the rapture and the second coming, right? We were talking about all of these kinds of things. And, um, and so as my son was staring out the window looking up at the sky, in my heart I knew he was about to ask me the key question. I was waiting for him to ask, Dad, when is Jesus coming back? Right, And so I was, in my mind, already figuring how I was going to answer that question to a small boy. Things like, you know, we don't know when Jesus' return will be. Even Jesus himself, while he was on the earth, said he didn't know, only the Father knows. And so I was prepared to tell him, we don't know the timing of the Lord's return, we just know the truth of the Lord's return return. And so in my mind, I was ready for that question, you know, that was going to come. And instead, this was the question I received. Dad, do you think there'll be hot tubs in heaven? I had no idea how to give a theological foundation for that. I don't know the timing of Jesus' return, but I know that Jesus is returning. And His return is near. And when I mean near, I mean exactly what I think the New Testament means when it speaks to us about His coming is near. That there's nothing else that needs to happen in order for Jesus Christ to return. 
Right? So we've had this long period of history culminating with the birth of Christ, as Hebrews 1 says, that God spoke to us in many times, in many ways, and through the prophets and so forth. Then he says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so after his death, and after his resurrection, and after his ascension into heaven, the next major step in history is his return. The next big thing, the next big event in God's redemptive plan is the return of the king. And that's what the New Testament means when it says his return is near. Right? We have passages like Romans 13, 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Hebrews 10.25, do not neglect to meet together as the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Peter says in 1 Peter 4 verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. And so church, the next major event to come in God's redemptive plan is the return of Christ for his church. And that's what the New Testament means when it says his return is near or his return is at hand. The coming of Christ is near. We are living in the last days. And as believers, we long for the rapture. That's why You know, yesterday we had two of the three rapture texts. Actually, let me back up. All three of the rapture texts in the New Testament were read at a funeral service here yesterday afternoon. We read John 14. We read 1 Corinthians 15. And we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the fact that Jesus Christ is returning for His church. So the Bible speaks of two comings. Right There is the rapture and there is the second coming. There is a day when Jesus will come for the church and then there is a day when He will come with the church. There is a day when Jesus will come and capture the saints and then there is a day that He will come and confront sinners. Our text today speaks about the truth that Jesus is coming back. It is clear. In verse 1 in our text today, it speaks of the miseries that are coming. Verse 3, the last days. Verse 5, the day of slaughter. Verse 7, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. One thing is certain, Jesus Christ is returning. He will return to capture the saints. And He will return to confront sinners. Now can I ask you before we jump into this text, how will He be coming for you? Will you be one of the great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation? That will be caught up, snatched away, raptured when Christ returns for His church? Or will you experience the hand 
of Christ's judgment. Our text today addresses two groups of people. It addresses saints and sinners. It addresses the saints that will be captured, snatched up, taken away. And it addresses sinners that will be confronted and judged ultimately and finally and eternally for their sin. And we have both represented in these 12 verses. How do we know that? Well, in verses 7 through 12, you have the word brothers mentioned four times. That is a passage of Scripture that is driven to believers, to saints, to Christians. You have no such language in verses 1 through 6. And so as we look at the text that was read for us earlier today, we see two things. Number one, that Jesus is coming and He will confront sin. He is coming to confront sinners. He says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. The word rich is a Greek word that in English speaks of people that are ruled by the God of wealth. James is not merely condemning wealth. No, he is focusing on the sinful use of material things. The words weep and howl are the responses of those who are being judged. In fact, in uh, the Old Testament... 21 times the word howl describes the violent grief of those who are coming face to face with divine judgment, divine wrath. The word miseries is not merely misery, singular. meaning in this life, but miseries, plural. That which comes at the final judgment of Christ. Verses 2 and 3, your riches have rotted your garments. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat and 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 will eat your flesh like fire fire you have laid up treasure in the last days notice the words rotted moth eaten corroded james was so certain about the judgment of god that he used past tense verbs that clearly speak of future judgment. Notice the words, have rotted, are moth-eaten, have corroded, have laid up. Judgment was so sure for James that he viewed it as something that was already taking place. In his mind, The fact that Jesus is coming to confront sinners is something that has already taken place. That's how sure he knew the day would be. 
Verse 4 says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. When wealthy people today get their way because of money, we may say something like, money talks. Well, James also says money talks, but in a different way. The word fraud, by the way, is an immoral action that is never condoned as a Christian. James is saying that tainted money taken fraudulently from innocent people is crying out to God. Even at this very moment. James is showing us that God hears the cries of those who are being abused by the wealthy. And that God will respond in judgment. Listen, dear ones, God is not locked away in some room just kind of sitting around aimlessly waiting for the time when He will send His Son to come. No, God is watching and He is present among humanity. God watches every transaction we make. He sees the poor. He sees the rich who abuse them. By the way, it's interesting, the Lord of hosts, the title that he uses, is a title used over 240 times by the prophets. It means that he is the Lord omnipotent. He is the Lord almighty. These are the same Hebrew words as the Lord of hosts. In other words, he is the commander of heaven's armies and God's ears are attentive to the cries of injustice throughout the land. I wonder sometimes if we're more wrapped up in all the injustices that might be taking place in Washington, D.C. than we are the injustices that take place every single day and every single one of them caught by the attentive eyes of a sovereign, righteous, holy God. Verse 5, he says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James is speaking of a group of people who were stuffing themselves, but what they were really doing was fattening themselves for the day of slaughter. Very clearly, the rich in these verses are not Christians. And very clearly, the judgment of Jesus Christ is coming. So, it begs the question, now that we've looked at these first six verses, why, in a book that is addressed to Christians... Does James spend so much time using such hard language to a group of people who aren't even Christians? To a group of people who aren't even going to read these words that are addressed to them? Why? I suspect, as most scholars do, 
that these words are written in sacred, sacred scripture addressed to sinners to be read in the church because it was evident even in the first century how Christians needed to constantly look at the greed in their own hearts. I mean, look at the very last phrase, right, at the end of verse 3. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Is that not, dear ones, a word that we need to hear? We are living in the most affluent country in the history of the world. Are we not driven by laid up treasures? We need these words. By the way, these words are simply reminding us of what Jesus himself said. Mark 10, verse 25, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What then should a Christian do with money? What then should a Christian do with their resources? Well, we should do what Paul told Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to, and here it is, do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Right? So we can lay up treasure for ourselves on the earth or we can send it ahead of us by the way we do ministry and by the way we serve the needs of others. Let me give you some real quick application and then we're going to get to the good stuff. All right? Here are some things I think that we can apply to our own lives, even though we know that this is a passage of Scripture that is directed to sinners, to lost people, to those without Christ. It's a good way for time for us to stop and remember this truth. When it comes to money, don't be seduced by it. When it comes to money, don't be secure in it. In other words, we should ask ourselves the question, has our wealth blinded us to God? Has our desire for security in this life dulled our hearing to what God wants to do and what God wants to accomplish in this world? Now, you remember... In the introduction, we talked about the fact that the coming of Jesus is near. The very next thing in God's redemptive plan is the return of the king for his church. That means the next sound we hear could be the trumpet call. The next voice we hear could be that of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of us living in such affluence 
all of us need to be looking at our hearts. How am I using the resources that God has entrusted to me to advance the kingdom of God? I can't take it with me, Paul told Timothy, but I can send it ahead by the way I do ministry. Don't be seduced by wealth. Don't be secure in wealth. Don't be selfish with wealth. Jesus is coming. And He will come and confront sinners. Jesus is also coming and He will capture the saints. Now, I need you to do me a favor for just a minute. Before we look at verses 7 through 12, in order to set the stage for this text, here's what I need you to do for me. Um, I want you to just right now close your eyes. Just close your eyes, all of us. And I want you to picture yourself as a struggling, impoverished, first century, persecuted Christian. See yourself as poor, starving, and bearing the stripes on your body of persecution as a follower of Jesus. See yourself that way. And now you have James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he wants to speak into your life. Now let's open our eyes and hear James speak to us. James says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the earth and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So like a farmer waiting for a harvest, James is saying, you trust God with the things that you cannot control. A farmer cannot control when it will rain and when it will not rain. James is saying when you face hardship, you trust in God. You be patient. You strengthen. You establish your faith. And stand firm in the hope of the gospel. Why do I establish my heart? Because Jesus is coming at any moment. At any time. When life is hard and confusing and difficult and you're uh, discouraged and you're wondering. Don't let your heart go. Don't let it get cold. Don't let it get hard by life. I can still see the day like it was yesterday.
I stood in a waiting room with one of my dear friends at a previous church whose son had had an argument with his wife, got angry, got in his car, left, driving at a high rate of speed, goes around a corner, runs off the road, hits a culvert. He is ejected from the car. I'm standing in this room with his mom and dad, his brother. I see this man, he, Whitney, he's about your size. Massive tears pouring down his face. Pastor, please. Go tell that doctor he can have anything in my body. My son can have anything in my body that he needs to live. And it was not to be. That crisis... is hard enough for a believer who is strong in his faith. It is crushing for those who are weak in their faith. All of us in this room, every one of us, myself included, we have all walked through days that are hard And experiences that lead us to wonder, where is God? What's He doing? Does He know about what I'm experiencing? Does He know what I'm going through? Is He aware of the difficulty in my life? And does He care at all? Adversity does one of two things. It draws us closer to the Lord. Or it drives us away. And the difference is in where we are right now. Some of you may walk out of this auditorium. And this afternoon receive a crushing phone call. Something that leaves you in deep pain. Where you are right now today in terms of your intimacy with Christ is what will carry you through in the hardships of life. Don't let your heart get hard. Don't let your heart get cold. Make sure that you... Never walk away from the things that establish, that strengthen your heart. What is that? It's hearing the voice of God. How do I hear God's voice? In His Word. Right? It's, it's also having God's ear. In other words, I'm going to pray over everything. It's also belonging to his body. I need brothers and sisters in Christ around me that on days when I can't stand on my own, they're going to hold me up.
And that's what, that's what we need. Verse 9 says, Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is a text for believers that says, Stop and think about how much complaining you do. Um, the Greek word for complain suggests moaning and groaning. You know this and I know this, complaining is draining in the Christian life. It's draining for the person who complains and it's draining for the person who has to hear it. And I, By the way, I, I don't mind if you have concerns and you come and share those concerns with me. I have one simple request that I ask. Do not come and share them with me two minutes before I get up to preach. All right. Do them at the end of the service. I want to feel bad going home, not when I'm getting ready to get in the pulpit. Okay? But he's talking about, you know, our speech. Now let me hurry. Verse 10 is an example of suffering and patience. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You heard of the steadfastness of Job, and don't miss this. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The phrase, the purpose of the Lord, is a refreshing phrase. God had a purpose in Job's suffering. See, Job needed to know God better. God's great purpose in Job's trials was Job going deeper with God. See, God's purpose uh, was not something for Job to do. God's purpose was for Job to see more of God. The word for compassion, by the way, means big-hearted. <laughs> so like Job, isn't it true that one of the great things we come to learn when we go through a trial is that our God is a big-hearted God? Well, verse, verse 12, Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or um, by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation as we grow, as we establish our hearts. The words that comes out of our mouth should be consistently clear and simple and truthful. And that's what he means. Let's be men and women of integrity. Let's be truth tellers. So, believers... Here are some application for us from this truth. Number one, trust that God will make all things right because He will. He will. In Revelation 21 verse 5, And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Number two, be a life builder and not a life breaker. Don't look for opportunities to complain. Look for opportunities right, to build up, to encourage one another. Be a life builder and not a life breaker. And number three, go deep with God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Church, God has a purpose for your life. He is a big-hearted God. He is full of mercy and grace. And we need to trust His plan. We need to experience His peace. We need to trust His purpose for our life. Remember, God is not just trying to get us into heaven. God is trying to get heaven into us. He is trying to change us from the inside out.
Jesus is coming. Are you ready? He is going to come and He is going to capture saints. And He is going to come and He is going to confront sinners. Right now today where you sit, I just want to ask you, when Jesus comes, are you going to be captured? Or will you be confronted? And the difference is your personal life.